Let me just take this space to alert you to our new digital magazine uh, called The Front of the Bus, same as a podcast. Um, for four issues, it's £10, £2.50 an issue. I think that's pretty reasonable. And it's covering the stories that um, the mainstream Scottish media don't, whether it's corruption or shining a light on stuff that's um, perhaps needing a light shone on it kind of following on from the books and documentaries I did with they also having guest writers and stuff like that. Issue one is out now and to subscribe you can PayPal we still won at yahoo.com ten pounds and you will receive that issue instantaneously and three other issues after that. So it's the front of the bus digital magazine. We've also got a page on Facebook at the front of the bus. Search that on Facebook. Um, you'll see more details there. But in the meantime, you know, subscribe, you know, read some new stuff, some good stuff, some original stuff, and some stuff that you might have read already.
No what? That was Ian just interrupting the introduction. <laughs> Welcome to another uh, episode of Front of the Bus. And on the line we have Hibs historian, author, and all-round good guy Ian Calhoun. Ian, hello. Hiya, Paul. How are you doing? Not bad, mate. How are yourself? Ah, getting there, getting there, mate. Uh, it's, one of, it's one of these years, let's just say that. So let's get straight into it now. I was recently um, rereading your book from Oblivion to Hamden, Hibs Heroes in 1991. And um, I mean, that's, I'm a bit older than you, obviously, and that, that really took me back to that era, especially, you know, the takeover and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what was it like looking back on that kind of thing, um, particularly the summer of 1990? Well, that was any heavy. Any heavy over 30, I'll tell you, that was the most unutterably horrible experience ever following mm. Hibs. Uh, worse than getting beat 7-0 at Ibrox or 7-0 at Malmo, the two worst modern defeats. Aye. Uh, worse than that uh, dodgy cup final against Harps. This <laughs> was like existential peril. And growing up in West Lothian, that's... Let's just say a lot, a lot of my peers found that very funny that Hibs weren't going to exist. Other Aye. than a couple of Jambos and Celtic fans, everybody thought it was kind of hilarious. Aye. Aye. I mean, it was, um, you know, Hibs team-wise weren't in a great state, but I didn't think anybody realised that the club was so kind of vulnerable at the time. Um, and obviously Wallace Mercer kind of exposed that when he's buying up his shares. I mean, do you think... Wallace Mercer understood um, the kind of backlash he would feel against this. I think Wallace was a like a, a really big sports fan, and it it was a visionary idea, and it's one of those ideas that's really good on paper and mm. probably as a business idea, but. It didn't take into account what the fans thought, and that's a you ignore that at your peril in football, don't you? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I remember where I was when I heard the news. I was in my bedroom. I was sixteen, and it was just about exam time, and um, kind of lying in my bed and listening to Radio Fourth, and the news came up across, and then I kind of what the fuck did they just say there? <laughs> you know, and then um, had went up to meet my mate, who's a hippie, and I can distinctly remember he was coming down um, Pennywell Road in Edinburgh, laughing, and I said, I take it you've not heard the fucking news then? And he was like, what are you talking about? Told him what had happened, and from there we just went straight up to Easter Road, where there was a small gathering of fans that inevitably grew into a massive gathering of fans, and as you say, the kind of passion and commitment and the vitriol towards Mercer was huge. And I just think that, like what you said there with his idea, he didn't appreciate that there would be a sizable backlash, particularly, obviously, from fans of Hibs, um, to basically what was going to be the destruction of their football club. It's a it's way, way Mercer's attitude towards it. Part of that still exists in football. By that, I mean... The middle and upper class football supporters don't comprehend the, the often stronger passion and esteem in which working class fans hold their team and mm-hmm. their club. Um, Mercer's 
you never know if Mercer, if Mercer had had his way, there might have been this single Edinburgh football team that had maybe played in the Champions League a few times and put up more of a fight in terms of a league challenge and that. But that wasn't really his agenda. I don't. I've never really believed that. Um, it was all about making Hearts the the only team in Edinburgh, mm. and Hibs fans saw through that and we fought it. I mean, one of the things that I've seen often, Ian, um, observing for you side is that Hearts and their fans seem a lot more defined by Hibs than vice versa. And by that, I mean. Hertz could win the league, but if see if they lost four times to Hibs that season, their fans would they fucking be happy. Whereas I didn't think Hibs fans, I didn't think Hibs fans would give a toss about that if they won the league, you know. It just see they just seem to have this kind of, you know, they try and they try and um, sort of marginalise it in a respect to a big team, we team nonsense thing. But in reality, Hearts fans just seem a lot more scared of what Hibs do than vice versa. I um. Most like most Hearts fans are top people, but um, we're like their comfort blanket. Whenever things aren't gone right for them, they they feel they can kick down the way mm-hmm. and beat Hearts. Like if you look at Hearts in the early to mid nineties, if see if they hadn't had that with that uh, twenty two match unbeaten run against mm-hmm. Hibs, that they'd been a lynch mob for yeah. Hearts owners because they were finishing in the bottom half of the league. They weren't doing anything in the cups. But that we run against Hibs papered over the cracks, and that's kind of that helped to at other times work for Hearts owners like Romanov. Mm-hmm. Um, we Hibs, we're more, we like to beat the Hearts, we like to win the Derby, but if we do have a comfort blanket, it tends more to be our history and achievements mm-hmm. rather than uh, sticking one on the city rivals. Aye. We do celebrate that, but that you're right, that does not. Defining us. No, I, I've never thought it was. I mean, I always thought, you know, take a manager like Shaba Laszlo at Hearts, he finished third in the league, but he didn't beat Hibs, and ultimately that's what cost him his job. Okay, what I mean, it was that they just, they just couldn't stomach that. But getting back to your book, I mean, this was a, you know, the period that you're writing about in this book particularly um, is a kind of strange period in Scottish football. First of all, Scotland were regularly qualifying for World Cups, which was <laughs> a bit of a fucking enigma nowadays. But I think I think people need to understand how close, you know, Hibs came to, came to Oblivion and then also how quickly they kind of got their act together. Sorry, there was a, a wee audio jump there. Sorry, I was just saying that uh, people, I think people need to realise how close Hibs were to Oblivion, but then also how quickly they actually did manage to get their act together. Well, well aye, it was, a, it was a close run thing. In fact, if Wallace Mercer hadn't tried to take over the extent of, of the debt for that ridiculous PLC which owned mm. Hibs, would perhaps have been, it would have been harder to find out and we might not have found out until receivership or something. Mm-hmm. We, we needed somebody with money to save us as well as fan power, though fan power on its own can't erase vast sums of debt. Mm-hmm. It can't even restructure them. So the two of these, uh, Kenny McLean and Doogie Crone that went to see Tom Farmer, that was a meeting that saved us from that. But 
Nobody would have bothered to save us if it hadn't been for the fan power kicking up a stink about the takeover in the first place, you know? Definitely. I mean, I was at the rally Easter Road, the Proclaimers and Joe Baker and all that was there. And you're right, I mean, there was a few jambos there. There was a, quite a few Celtic fans and obviously thousands and thousands of hibbies. But there was, certainly wasn't a general feeling about Scottish football that we must save hibs. You know, um, and that's, you know, cut, cutting into the class thing, I think, is really important because it was working class, class people on the ground that actually pushed that message out, you know what I mean? Um, but, I mean, to me it was interesting as well the fact that, um, you know, right after, people might not remember this, and I would advise them to look on YouTube at this, you know, Hibs played Hearts pretty early on in that season, and that almost ended up in a full-scale civil war. Yeah, there hasn't been that many matches, Hibs matches, where I've found atmosphere to be utterly poisonous, but mm. that was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Hearts scalped us in that game, the Hibs team in 1990-91 season was rotten anyway. Aye. There was... Fighting in, fighting in the main stand. There was a uh, bother over beside where the terracing met the airway in. And I heard that there was innumerable bother, bother away from the stadium as well. <laughs> and that was, all, that was always going to be a Serian, much like when, when you played Rangers just after they went bust in 2012. <laughs> Aye, I mean, it was... Um... I can remember vividly because we played actually Hearts the week after and beat them 3 0. And kind of a lot of people, Celtic fans in the jungle especially, continued on the singing for the Hibs fans about like Mercer must die and all that kind of thing, you know. Um, but as you say, the Hibs team that season, I mean, they were dreadful. I mean, there's no getting away from it, um, you know, in particular. And I didn't want to keep opening up old wounds, but the Derby match that season. Um, at Easter Road was her appalling uh, New Year um, when Hearts won 4 1. And, um, you know, I remember actually we played Hibs the following Saturday after that, and I was in Riley's in Haymarket in the, in the bar there, and there were jambos in there saying to me, Oh, I fucking relegate these bastards a day. And we were like, I mean, we fuck off, you jambo bastards, you know. <laughs> but, you know, Hibs, Hibs, you know, just there just seemed to be a cloud over Hibs throughout that season and kind of defeat after defeat after defeat kept coming. I mean, how hard... I mean, one of the things... One of the, the, the sort of um, constants through this episode was the fact that Alec Miller was a manager and I know he's a guy that divides Hibs supporters. But how good or bad a job do you think he was doing at the time? He had not... At the time of that, season 90, 91, he just lost... Arguably one of Scotland's best players, John Collins, mm-hmm. and there was no money for anybody for any replacement. The money went to the bank, and he was left to muddle on. Although cash was found a little bit into the season to get Murdo McLeod because mm-hmm. he could yeah, be both a coach and a player, so he was good value. Aye. The trouble that season was the strikers. I the top scorer that season was Paul Wright with six. That mm. tells you all you need to know about. Aye. And also that season, you only really had to score one goal to beat Hibs mm-hmm. all, all campaign. Um, 
were turgidly mad. If it hadn't been for Andy Gorham, they might have been doing by Christmas. Aye, aye, that's very true. I mean, Gorham was uh, coming really coming into his pomp at that point, you know what I mean? But That season, that season one, perhaps thumped us in a game at Tynecastle, and it was that good that the Jambos were singing there's only one Andy Gorham. <laughs> uh, that shows you how bad Hibs were that season. Aye. No, that's that's absolutely right. Um, but he struggled on. And what kind of stuff happened? Do you think in the summer of nineteen ninety one that allowed Hibs to kind of really prosper in season ninety one ninety two? The the spectre of the debt being jettisoned. Uh, Hibernian Football Club was just one part of that ridiculous PLC. Mine mm. that had sports centres. I had a couple of random pieces of land and I think there was a there might have been a nightclub down mm. south I'm not I, I can't quite remember that but what we got was everybody got a fresh start from manager to players um, we were saved and money was spent we needed a something see supporting Hibs or any other of the so-called provincial clubs, mm-hmm. you need a something every season. What I would say a something is, is a good signing, a big signing, and or a decent cup run. In 91-92, we, we had both by October, mm-hmm. and that's what gave us that good season, but also in 91-92 there's a kind of X-factor, as je ne sais quoi, where the team was, although the team was much the same other than we'd replaced um, Paul Wright with Keith Wright, Keith made all the difference with his goals, but the whole of the team seemed reinvigorated, they were playing without fear, they looked, they were playing with smile on their faces, and you saw that most of all, ironically, in the opener, the season opener against St Mirren. Mm-hmm. We'd been, we'd been like the basement boys with St Mirren most of the previous season, and it was roughly the same two squads that played on the opener for ninety-one, ninety-two. We pumped them four-one at Easter Road, and. You could feel that at that game a weight being lifted off the support shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, that everything was going to be all right, and I think that that feel-good factor rubbed off on the manager, on the players, and was the catalyst, the galvanising force behind the League Cup win. I mean, in your book, you really graphically and brilliantly detail the kind of run, and it really, it really did take me back. Um, I think Hibs previously a year had been knocked out at Starks Park in the cup, and <laughs> you know you could see both within the writing and within the team's playing, that there was a momentum building through the rounds that obviously took you to the semi-final against um, the dearly departed Rangers. I mean, that was a... You know, I can remember clear as well, wasn't it, that game on Radio 4th? I can remember after Hibs won it, Grant Stock came on and played Sunshine on Leith and all that kind of thing. It was a really seismic result for Hibs that night. Even most of us weren't expecting that, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, like were, you know what that Rangers team was like? It was all conquering. It mm-hmm. was or hard to beat. Aye. But Richard Goff wasn't playing that. gave us a really good chance that Aye. night. It worked for us that night. 
It's went down in four quarters. I kind of spawning Hibs victory, but it really wasn't. No. We had five no. or six chances mm -hmm. in the game. So did Rangers. Okay, Rangers had the one. Like Mo Johnston hit the post, mm -hmm. and there was another like uh, scrambled effort that Budgie eventually stopped. Aye. But it's not, it's not like it was a relentless sea of Rangers pressure and we nah. nipped up the park and scored. We gave them a, we played to our own strengths and we deserved the place in the final. I remember um, something that you really you talked about that I'd not thought about for a long time was John Burridge slagging off people like Mark Haley and that in the tunnel before the game and stuff, which I've always kind of liked that kind of thing where. I think in Scotland you're primed to think that, that, that Rangers were always all, all conquering, invincible, untouchable. And here was a guy who was like, fuck you, Hately, I've played 700 games in the Premier League and all that kind of thing, you know. And an interesting, I don't know if you ever heard this story, I read in Niall Quinn's book about John Burridge when they were playing in the same team together. And uh, Burridge used to have headphones in every week on the bus, but long before this was fashionable. And one week Quinn grabbed the headphones off him for a laugh. And when he put them on, it was it was a tapey John Burridge himself saying, "You are the best goalkeeper in the world." Peter Shelton, rubbish. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also remember the thing that you reminded me of as well is that Burridge never used to wear a Hibs goalie top. There, there were a couple of matches where Budgie did wear the the proper Hibs yeah. top, but. He he preferred to wear, I think Mickey Weir referred to it as a Farmer Brown jersey. <laughs> it was like, a, a, he had a couple of them actually. One of them was green and black, and they were like padded jerseys, and if the ball hit it, it was budget. Budget reckoned it was less likely to spin away. <laughs> um, the, the shirt would absorb, uh, would absorb the impact. There was one game at Broomfield where we actually got beat by Airdrie mm -hmm. where uh, the referee was insisting that he wear this this McBean Hibs jersey Aye. and Budgie was losing it because he wanted to wear the Farmer Brown top <laughs> uh, he was like a good, good goalie John Burridge he was just what we needed like he said for the personality thing Aye. remember our players and fans have been up to that semi-final I've been hearing how brilliant Rangers are from mm -hmm. the telly the radio the papers that sort of things that going to embed themselves in. And then suddenly this English madcap brilliant goalkeeper comes in and he's swaggering about, swagging off the Rangers players, having banter with them, firing up the lads, and he was just the tonic budgie. Mm -hmm. One of the signings where everything just clicks for a wee while. And then, of course, he, he was one of the legends that lifted the cup that season, although he was almost... Uh, lobbed by Graham Mitchell in an, what was an early pass-back <laughs> episode. Again, I think it was against it was against Aaron Kilmarnock in mm -hmm. one of the earlier rounds. But my budget was great. It was just what we needed. And you talked about uh, Murder McLeod as well. I mean, Murder McLeod is a brilliant football player. You know, I remember watching him at Celtic, and you get you get this thing now where you get you get midfielders in your team, and you say, "Oh, if you can get ten goals a season out of them." And it felt like when you were watching Murdo, he was getting that by October. You know, he was just class above. He met Dortmund and then came back to Hibs and still had a fair bit in the, the tank kind of thing. I mean, do you think his experience was a, was a crucial factor in that team? Yes. Um, simple answer is yes. There was a joke in the Hibs fanzines at the time that 
the only thing Murdo hadn't brought back for Germany was his rocket shot. <laughs> he left it at the airport or something. But we didn't care because he was what you need, the bit of experience, the calming, the calming influence in the middle of the park. And in fact, Murdo's best games for Hibs came in the Cups and in the subsequent UEFA Cup match against Anderlecht. Aye, and it, aye. And, and which he was just superb. Aye, yeah, I mean... And he was, he was go on, captain sorry. fantastic in that Cup run. Aye. I mean, I'll take you to the actual Cup final itself now. There's a few things that I was living in Edinburgh at the time and it felt like, it did feel like half Edinburgh had gone to that Cup final. Um, and there was when you can yourself cup finals come along there was guys I didn't even know supported Hibs were off you know to go and see it and that kind of thing there's something I mean the game itself there's two things I remember that you'll probably know you be aware of because of the being around the events that same day was the thing called the Smash Hits Awards on the <laughs> telly and uh I remember that was kind of um, moved because they were showing the cup final to BBC Two. The second thing was, and I can't remember if he documented this in the book or no, it's nothing to do with the game. Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, was knocked off number one for the first time by U2. And I was a regular, you know, listener to the charts then. And it was all with Mark Goodyear, and it was number two. And it came on, holy shit, who the fuck was number one? And that every time I hear the fly by you two, I think he Hibs winning that cup that day. Because, I mean, I actually, when you, you know, in my mind I was saying, ah, the Hibs cruised to that. But actually, and as you remember people in the boot, Dunfermline made a decent fist of it in the first half, especially, didn't they? What, what kind of happened in that final was a, a really bad Dunfermline team uh, played reasonably well mm-hmm. and a really good Hibs team kind of had an off day in the first half anyway mm-hmm. that was a that was a strange anomaly about the final but it was an, an anomaly that still meant that we won mm-hmm. um, but they had their chances Scott Leach put a couple of shots wide that if you remember that big Istvan Cosma aye, aye. He, he was a class act in the mm-hmm. middle of the park like that almost a comedy sketch in itself now Dunfermline paying three quarters of a million pounds for a Hungarian international <laughs> um, and they had a new they, they changed manager Dunfermline they'd only recently got rid of Ian Monroe mm-hmm. and so they had Jockey Scott and and who know you never know what might have happened if uh, Mickey Weir hadn't been brought down and it yeah. definitely was a stonewall penalty I've never seen a more certain penalty in my life <laughs> certainly certainly against all the ones Hearts seem to get in cup finals that's for sure but um, I remember I mean you talked about Keith Wright earlier on Keith Wright was an absolute particularly at that point a goal machine for Hibs I remember Hibs selling Paul Wright and Hibs fans were like for fuck's sake if we didn't get Keith Wright in here we're toiling but they did and uh, you know but then, of course, it was Tommy McIntyre that slotted away the penalty. And as you said in the book, he'd had a torturous time at Hamden two years before against Celtic and Steve Fulton's debut. I remember it well. I think he was substituted after about half an hour. Um, so for the big man to kind of slot up, takes balls, but also just completely relieved the pressure on that Hibs team. Eh? Aye. Aye. Tommy, Tommy was my favourite Hibs defender. Probably still is over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it took that must have took that took guts to take that penalty after it wasn't just Tommy that Steve Fulton had ripped apart two years earlier at Hamden. It was Neil Orr as well. The whole defence, but Tommy was the kind of scapegoat, if you like, it for that result. Maybe it was because him and Neil Orr were both wearing cycling shorts, if you remember that strange fashion. <laughs> in the ball. Aye, aye. But he'd had that bad afternoon against Steve Fulton, and then he comes up, Tommy, with the hopes of the green half of Edinburgh and the Lovians on his shoulders, and can he get a more perfect penalty? Yeah. It rolls quickly into the bottom Aye. corner. The goalie's no getting that, even if he does go the right way. And Aye. see when Tommy scored that, again, like on the first day of the season, that season against St Mirren, you could feel the relief in Hamden as well as the joy. Mm. He knew it wasn't going to be something, uh, another disappointment, and there had been many, most of them against your team at Hamden, <laughs> I might add. But... Once Tommy's penalty goes in, you could you could feel it, and after that, it was basically a case of how many goals Aye. are going to get. Aye. Definitely, and then of course, Keith Wright does what he does and scores the second. And it's one of them. I think when you're growing up as a kid, you envisage this so often. Be straight through, one on one with a goalkeeper towards your own support, and all you've got to do is knock that ball in the net, and it's a the cup's gone him kind of thing, you know. Um, and that's exactly what he did and it felt like you know I watched it in the house I could vividly remember households saw cheering around the area in Muirhouse and then of course Hibs won the cup and then there was this kind of explosion in the east side of Edinburgh if you like when the team came back and all that and it was friends of mine I didn't think I saw for about four fucking days after that you know what I mean they were just <laughs> partying non-stop um, and it really was I mean to come cl- so close to as you say oblivion to then winning a cup a year and what 14-15 months later it doesn't get much better than that does it? No it was this, this stuff almost fairy tales and it was Sky Sports who christened us the team that wouldn't die I remember that aye um, to come to come back for the the absolute depression of just over a year before that um, and to win that it's one of the fairy tale moments in Scottish football mm-hmm. we hadn't like Edinburgh hadn't won a trophy since our last trophy win in 1972 so there was a there was a generation of Hibs fans who'd never seen Hibs win anything maybe two if you can or the Bairns who saw us win it in 1991 mm-hmm it was important and also going forward it was important because it gave gave us seven years of ripping the pitch out of the jambos with that no cups and Gorgie what's it like to win F all part <laughs> which was great fun I was going to say and, uh, it definitely reinforced that fact that Hart suddenly won a trophy since 1962 when Hibs won that day you know true there was um yeah, Hearts haven't won the League Cup since before the main part of the Vietnam War. <laughs> and also, in the, ban- in the fan banter stakes, and particularly if you're a working class fan bumping into opposition supporters at school, college or at your work, mm-hmm. you-, you need to have something in the banter stakes. And it, it gave us an equilibrium. Like, Hearts had their, uh, you can't beat us even though we're pitch. They had that. We had no cups in Gorky. And it, it 
if I back, the score by back here, equilibrium eh, Edinburgh football, aye, aye, which kind of, definitely, uh, definitely. I mean, I think the Hibs guys that I knew and, and know, the, the, the mo- number one sentence out their mouth at that time was to Hearts fans, when was the last time you won a major trophy? And that was it <laughs> all the time, you know what I mean? But we'll come on to your new book in a bit, what you're doing there, but I want to talk a bit about writing. I mean, how did you get started with the writing, Ian? Um, I was always good at English at school. Mm-hmm. Like, I, anybody I was at school with, any teacher I had would say I was streets ahead of anybody in my year. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't find writing to be either useful at the time or particularly a cool talent to have. Aye. So I, I, I kind of forgot what I could do it. And then after like, after I became disabled and my life changed and I couldn't work in warehouses anymore. Mm-hmm. I went back to, I went to university and at university I, I kind of got spotted by a couple of lecturers who said you should be writing books with your knowledge and understanding and your writing acumen and I listened to them and it was kind of what some of my family had been saying for years and I got a chance to write a book. Actually, I was asked if by someone if they could ghostwrite a survival memoir about an incident where I ended up making me disabled. And what I said to them was, "Eh, no, I'll write it myself. I wrote it in a fortnight. And after that, I I kind of didn't stop. (laughs) It helps you, you, it's cathartic, it's therapeutic, whatever you want to call it. It's an escape, but it's also... Highly enjoyable, and I. Uh, I mean, what would you say? I mean, do you have any kind of process when you're writing? I do now. With the first book, I just kind of got isolated myself for two weeks with mm-hmm. a loaded cough, and but that was different. I had a really serious story that I had to tell. For for other books, I have the idea, and then. It's there in the back of my head, sometimes for up to six months, sometimes a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. And I plan it just in my head without notes, whenever I've got a spare minute to myself. And eventually it builds like a tornado or a whirlwind in my head. Mm-hmm. And then when, I, when I'm sure that I have it, I go, I go and turn on the computer and start to type it out. Mm-hmm. and I don't really stop until it's done <laughs> it's a marathon 12 and 14 hour constant typing sessions and to my surprise when I look at it at the end it's reasonably coherent apart mm-hmm. from the type, typing errors you know Aye. so it's a, that's, that's the process I let it build and build in my brain until it has to be expressed that's, I mean that is an interest that's very kind of similar to, to, to what I do and sometimes I'll have a, a, something you know I think is the best idea ever and then two days later I'll think well what shite that was and then just move on to something else like you know or there might be times um, I don't know if you've ever had this you know has there ever been books come out about Hibs where you thought oh fuck I wish I could have wrote about that subject Um. no but there are um what I found with Hibs books until fairly recently was there was a lot of books about the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, but there was virtually 
hee haw about the more modern stuff. There are the exceptions. Andy McLaren's We Are Hibernian. Aye. There was uh, Ted Brack's book about the, the wonderful time that Frank Sosie was a Hibs player. Mm-hmm. But I did notice that nobody had really wrote, written much about the two periods where I was uh, virtually at every game and, mm-hmm. and of which I have vivid memories for some reason. It's, um can remember smells, can remember what was sung at games in there, at certain games in the early 90s, can remember these quirky events. Uh, so I just thought, well, after the encouragement for Bobby Sinnott and Gordon McKinley at the St. Patrick's Hibs branch, mm-hmm. that's, how I, that's how I got the confidence to write Oblivion to Hamden and also, and then that gave me the confidence to do the one I've, I've just finished. See, when you talk about confidence here, Ian, I mean, we both come from working class backgrounds. Do you think that's something that we need to build in ourselves before we go out and do these kind of things? Absolutely. Um, football needs more working class writers. Writing in general needs more working mm-hmm. class writers. It can't be the preserving either the elite or people who their only jobs ever been writing. Uh, working class voices are important. Uh, might have been the case a few years ago where we might have been found it more difficult to get publishing deals, but not now. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly with football writing, the publishers just want stuff that's good. They don't care who wrote it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it is a. I mean, it's funny, like in this kind of social media age, when you talk about you can get instant credit, instant criticism, you know, all that sort of stuff. I've actually found quite a lot of the abuse that I've got in the time has been basically, to paraphrase, who the fuck are you for some councillor state to tell me anything? <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, uh, it's, it's kind of... I bet you've had this as well, Paul. If you had this, you'll meet somebody at an event, it might be a sign and it might not, and they come up and they tell you, oh, I was going to write it. Mm-hmm. what you wrote and it would have been better Aye. and I've, I've only ever had that once with a Hibs book and the person was polite enough about it but all I said to them was well where is your book mm, exactly. um, and I think there's maybe, maybe some I've never experienced this but I reckon with some clubs there'll be fans who think oh they write books about the club. They think they're an uber supporter. They think they're a better, they're a better supporter than the the fans who don't write books. And yeah. I've never had that with Hibs fans, but I'm sure I'm sure you get it with other teams. I mean, funnily enough, I had a, a situation like that on Saturday after the debacle the at Celtic Park, where someone got in touch with me on Twitter and said, "Would you want Gordon Strachan back as manager?" And I said, "No, for three reasons. He was last successful twelve years ago." When he's last season at Celtic Park, he took 10,000 off the gate. And nobody's really touched on for a football manager role since Scotland, so it would suggest that football's maybe moved on for him. To which the guy replied, fair enough. About half an hour later, I went and checked back, and this guy had tagged me in every single tweet he could see suggesting Gordon Strachan should be the manager, saying, but Paul Larkin disagrees. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? And he said... 
you fucking think you've got a better opinion than me. You think your opinion's better than mine. I'm like, what the fuck? You asked me for an opinion, I gave you it. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of fucking mental, like, but... I mean, it's. I think it really um, it strikes a, a chord when you talk about working class writing, and I do think it took me a long time to realise that the people that were in private schools and such like were getting confidence fucking drilled into them every day, and self esteem and all that sort of thing, so that they felt like they belonged everywhere and were entitled to everything. And um, a lot of my stuff was kind of like the having the confidence to actually write it, as you say. Um, having done a book and, and, and been involved in other books does that make you feel a little easier when you're starting a new book like your current one? Aye because um, you get you become aware of how the process is going to affect you mm. you also I find anyway you have a rough idea of how long it's going to take mm-hmm. and each one makes each one makes you better I think when you you said in the foreword for your your recent Albert Kid one, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you, your confidence had grown. Yeah, uh, and you you consider yourself a better that you consider yourself a better writer. Louis. Yeah. that's that's true. Aye, uh, it, uh, no nobody gets nobody gets worse. No, you have learned what what works and what doesn't. Um. I'm trying to, I was trying to think about specific things. There was the thing I do when I write the Hibs books to kind of reinforce the timeline. Mm-hmm. I put in the current events from the week. Say, yeah, I, right. say I'm writing about a Hibs Cup final. Mm-hmm. I put in what was number one in the charts. What, what was the big song at the cinema? What had happened in the news that week? What was something? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. was the the cat stuck up a tree type story for the news that week as well that helps the writer uh, to bond the readers mm. timeline of thinking if you like to what to what what the actual entry in the book's about because they think oh and they think back and it, then it's easier for the, the yeah. reader to mix themselves in what yeah. they've written yeah. and it also gives you a kind of breakwater between between the pieces you've written, that's like a practical mm-hmm. tracker track I've learned through writing. And I'm sure all writers have, have their own wee quirks and tracks. Uh, I mean, I was taught by a very good English teacher that when you're writing a book and you're writing about an event and you're writing, people that are reading it weren't at that event, talk about something that you know they've experienced as well. So if you were talking about the excitement of you know, um, Hibs, when Keith Wright ran through to score that second goal, you could see, Christ, it was like when the night I lost my virginity. And people go, I, I lost my virginity. I wasn't at that game, but I know that feeling, you know what I mean? And that kind of often works. Um, my, my style has always kind of been to be a wee bit like, um, we're talk, two guys talking in a pub, you know, and telling the stories, which can, you know, gets me a lot of kudos, but also gets me a lot of abuse. But in the same time, as you see, it comes back to that class thing where I see one of the things that drives me mad, and I don't know how you feel about this, is that nowadays all you've got to do is be a celebrity to get a book deal. We like, Aye. and it's one of the books with their faces on the cover, and it's all over Waterstones and all that sort of pish. And then you read it. My particular bugbear at the minute is Jamie Redknapp's book, 
which he's punted as an autobiography, but in reality he's only about the first 18 years of his life. You know? And I say, I always say to people, that's taking shelf space away from you. independent writers, you know what I mean? There seems to be a generic formula for the player biographies, and I, you'll have noticed this Aye. yourself, eh? You could go through with a pen and redact ev- almost every noun as in team name, manager <laughs> name, and they're, they kind of all read the same. It's Aye. clearly a formula that works, mm-hmm. but that's more the kind of job that your ghostwriter who works for a publishing company will do. Uh, working class. Mm-hmm. Or writers tend to tend to pr- produce a much more like original and organic content. And by the way, your your as you call it, man in the pub narrative is excellent, and that that's what most football fans want to read. Not if you not uh, if you forgive me. The day I signed for blank was a wonderful day for for me. <laughs> And the day that we beat blank and the final of the blank was an inspirational moment. And mm. nah, you yeah. want you want real stories with people who were there, who remember it, and who understand it. Aye, I, I, I mean that kind of dovetails into your football coverage. Really, it's all very bland and beige, and you know Dan Walker type. Fucking, let's not upset anybody. <laughs> but um, talking about your new book now. Um, this is going to cover for, I believe, 92 to 99 in Hibs history. Aye. Well, what, what I've done was Oblivion to Hamden finished, it ran from Hibs 1986 till the end of season 91-92 yeah. when we qualified for Europe by beating Celtic That's to right. one at Celtic Park on the last day, if you remember. Aye, I was there, I was there. And we've then I started writing a follow-up to it and I got lost because it didn't have a cup win and I wasn't sure how to present it um, without a cup win to build the book around. Mm-hmm. And then when this lockdown happened, I had met, like everybody, I had many weeks of spare time came up. And what I came up with was that the period in question doesn't need, doesn't need a cup win. I'd told the story inadvertently almost of the first half of Alec Miller's time at Hibs, so yeah. I thought I'll tell the second half, but the problem with that is the end's are bit, it's not a tragic ending, but the manager leaves early in season 96-97, so, but I also couldn't keep it going and then end it at the end of Jim Duffy's time, because that's, although it's something, it's a nice story, it's nowhere you'd end a book. Yeah. So I looked for where was the high, the first really high point? And I, it could have been the promotion in 1999. Mm-hmm. But I took, decided to take the story right up to the penultimate game of the millennium, the Hibs Harps, uh, Derby at Tynecastle, which we won 3 now. Mm-hmm. I thought that was as happy a place as any to end it, to, to take that story, the second half of Alec Miller, up to where, we, where Hibs went as a club. But although the book is still mostly focused on the, the last years of Alex's time at the club, because mm. he was the manager from when I was a wee boy up to when I was an adult. And great respect for Alec Miller as the Hibs manager, although at the time when he was the manager, I would have been one of the ones moaning about him. But mm-hmm. looking back now, uh, I was, it was 
wonderful to write about it and to, to go over it all again, even a bit emotional, Paul. Yeah. I mean, you talk about high points. One I remember distinctly is, of course, is when Hibs finally ended the run at Tyne Castle in 94. And I remember the game, I remember the day vividly, we'd won 2-0 at Ibrox. So, uh, come back and me and my mates were going to a party and I think we were out for about four fucking days after it with the, with the chorus of Fenian double ringing in our ears all the time. Um, and I can just remember because at that time, there wasn't the games only on the telly, they were both played at the same time, you're completely engrossed in your game and just happened to come back on the bus and somebody says, oh, by the way, Hibs won at Tynecastle. Really? Aye. Gordon Hunter scored the winner. Gordon Hunter? You know, it was like fucking one of them, like, you know, but... Um, that was certainly a, to get that albatross of Hibs back must have been huge at the time I because if the period 1991 in 95 we Hibs we score slightly more than we concede on average for that whole period mm-hmm. and we're in, the, we're in Scottish Cup semi-final in 1993 we're in the League Cup final in 1993 we're, in, we're uh, in the Scottish Cup semis again in 1995, the doubleheader against Celtic. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the flying the ointment of that wee run against Harps, most Harps fans would see that wee period as a golden era. Yeah, yeah, true. And so get, to beat them that time was the, with the 1-0-1, ironically, when we did beat them 1-0, we didn't actually play that well. <laughs> they, they could have scored two or three and we were somewhat fortunate to win the match 1-0, which was ironic given how some of the preceding 22 matches Aye. had went. We had battered them and then got like, uh, beaten 1-0 by things like Ian Baird headers or uh, John Burridge own goal at Tynecastle and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that was a big one. The reason I didn't use the picture of Gordon Hunter mm-hmm. from the new cover when it comes out is... That was just writing a statistical anomaly and ending an embarrassing run. Mm-hmm. Other than the day itself, it wasn't a cause for celebration. What was cause for a celebration was us beating Harps in three out of four derbies that season. I remember that. While they were battling relegation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was the triumph the whole the whole season. And of course, that season Hibs finished third. We split what was what was called the old firm, although Motherwell also split them. Yes. And that was that's overlooked about Alec Miller's time at Hibs that he was like we lost this uh, I'm sure we we only lost two more games than Rangers did. And what what stopped us finishing second or, or possibly even nicking the league that season was the uh, 17 or 19 draws. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that killed us. Aye, it does. That season. It was a, the boys who finished third that season maybe need a bit more recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, trouble is, there's no medals for third place. True, eh? true. All right, so when, when do you envisage that book being out, Ian? Publishers... Uh, going fast I doubt it'll be before Christmas now that's looking mm-hmm. impossible but certainly early, early spring maybe even February alright well we'll look forward to that so before we let you go we'll t- touch on a wee bit of politics uh, something that people might not know about you or might well do I don't know you write for the Irish Voice um, what's your sort of take on the political situation in Ireland right now? 
uh, with regards to Brexit and that? Well, I basically in the in the current um, sort of need for reunification, I guess. So there's been turmoil's been political turmoil's been brought to the island basically at the whim of some very wealthy British tax avoiders mm-hmm. and, and the desire to escape from reasonable European Union anti-tax avoidance legislation. Mm-hmm. There's also with, with the with the border, if you like, in Northern Ireland, maybe people shouldn't treat the Belfast Agreement as permanent because no no arrangement has ever been permanent. Mm-hmm. If, uh, the issue Irish unity always gets kicked down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd never underestimate the value of what stopped peace. I don't think there shouldn't be another drop of blood spilt mm-hmm. trying to accomplish what, ironically, what neoliberalism managed yeah. to accomplish yeah. uh, with the European Union, bringing peace to bringing peace to the island. But ultimately, it's a it's not one of the annoying things about British politics is the use of the phrase the Irish question. The Irish question should never really have been people on this island's question to ask. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, Scotland, I mean, do you think we're running nearer independence since 2014? Mm, I don't think so. Um, I'm beginning to see it a little bit more like, not the SNP and the Tories in cahoots with each other, but that's kind of what's accidentally happened. Because mm-hmm. as long as everybody up here, as, as long as a sizable number of progressives in Scotland keep voting for the SNP, and why wouldn't they? The, mm-hmm. Their the front, the front team's bit, uh, better than anything that's else at Holy Holyrood just now. Yeah. But co- cons- if it's not going to work, if there's another referendum and it's a no, then. What's the what's the alternative to constantly vote for something that isn't going to happen? Which lets uh, which lets the reason that you're voting for independence win all the time. The Tory party. Mm-hmm. So I would never vote no. I would, I, but I don't think I don't think there'll be a yes because the no block in Scotland of it's almost become a cult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're never they're immovable. The only thing that might change it is a change to the birth rate or <laughs> uh, something like that. But it's I now look at it as well. We could be independent and we could make a brilliant job of it. I also see that that entire argument has helped the Conservative Party to stay in power and it's created Brexit as well. So. I don't really have any enthusiasm. There's a good Hib supporter on Twitter who re- refers to all current politicians as narcissistic sociopaths. I know who and you I mean, yes. With one or two exceptions, <laughs> he's bang on the money there. Yeah. It's that... like, like what someone, with generally with politics, they know it's a bit like what someone once said about Fina Gale and Fina Fall. It's like choosing between shit and shite, Paul. <laughs> Absolutely right, Ian. All right, that will end on that. So good luck with the book. Good luck with everything in the future. Um, finally, any ideas after you've done this book, Ian? 
maybe something else. I might go back to writing history because no one buys that. So I don't. No one buys my history books. So that means I get <laughs> to the critics. But in all, in all honesty, it's likely to be a Hibs book again. <laughs> I'll just have to decide about what Paul. You've got to only give the people what they want, Ian. That's that. All right, well, it was lovely catching up with you, lovely chatting with you. All the best for the future, and we'll be in touch intermittently. All right, pal? Good luck, Paul. Thanks for having me on, pal. No bother. Cheers. And that was Ian Colhoun. What a brilliant guy. Um, so after that, and that wee downbeat bit at the end, I think it's only time to finish on one song. Oh, I can't.